Well, good morning again to you. Um, so, as Austin said, we are <clears throat> every Advent, so we're in the season of Advent. We started it officially last week. We're lighting candles. We're preaching from a gospel. It's what we always do as a sojourn family of churches. We are a part of a family of churches around Houston and hoping to plant more um, and as a family, we, we always come back December 1 or so at the beginning of Advent to a gospel and preach through that gospel. We're, we are going to be just in Luke 1, the whole chapter. I think it's 70-something verses, 76 verses. And so we'll preach all the way through that over the, through this month, and then we'll pivot to Genesis 1 in January. So here we are. We've just looked at the birth of John the Baptist. That's how Luke starts And now we're going to look at the birth of Jesus. And Luke focuses, like no other gospel writer, on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. How this, how God Almighty was born, not of a human father, but of God himself, of the Holy Spirit, and of a woman, Mary, of a poor Jewish peasant woman in the hills of Nazareth. So we're going to dive in with Luke to the virgin birth that he focuses on and see what we can see. And the first thing I want to start out, start out with is just that we, we look at um, Jesus as a mega king, point one, as a mega king. And I'll, you'll get what that means in a second. I mean, you kind of know, but it sounds a little bit like a Nintendo game. Um, so what, cord, what sort of king does this announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary as chronicled by, by Luke the historian, the physician turned historian, what sort of king does, do, do these verses and does Gabriel's announcement set us up to expect? We see in verses 32 and following that this child will be the son of the most high. The son of the most high, clearly a name for the one God of Mary, the one God of the Jews that the Jews worship. They believe that there was one, but one God. They were not polytheists. The one creator God, the, the one who was the only who, one who is uncreated. So he will be the son of the most high, He will, God will give this son, your son, Mary, that you will have, um, David's throne. King David was the most famous king of of Israel. He he gathered the tribes. He brought peace to Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was given the promise that from you, there will be a king that will reign over Israel. And his reign will never, he'll reign over all God's people. And his reign will have no end. And that's found in 2 Samuel 7, which I'll refer to in a bit as well. So God will give him David's throne. This is a very messianic promise that Gabriel, Gabriel is saying, look, this is the Messiah. He is coming to you. He's coming through you, Mary. He will reign over Jacob in these verses we see. He will reign over Jacob or Israel. Jacob and Israel, the same person. Jacob got the name Israel after wrestling with God in, in a chapter in Genesis. So he will reign over God's people forever. But then also by extended beyond that, not just over Israel, but there will be, again, no end to his kingdom. And there's a sense, a very universal, global sense in which this isn't just confined. He's not just going to be a parochial king. He's going to be a king unlike any king. And this is all given to Mary. So in short, what kind of, to answer the question, what sort of king does Gabriel set Mary and us up to expect as we read this text? Um, a great king. Verse 32 says, he will be great in the word in the Greek there. That's my first point, is megas. That's the word we get mega from. Um, he will be great. So again, to press in just a bit to what I jumped, I just flew through a second ago, this, this baby, 
who will grow up to be a man, will be God's own son. We see he will be the son of the Most High, Elion, um, in verses 32 and 35. Gabriel repeats himself and says, this, this child will be the son of God. The Most High is the term he uses. But then if you, and this isn't in our text, but we will preach it before the end of this month. It's in the song that Zechariah, we encountered him last week. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. Too old to have kids, and a promise is given to him that, hey, you are, are going to have a child with your old wife. Not, not a virgin who will conceive, but you and your wife who are past childbearing will have a son. His name will be John, and he will pave the way for Messiah. He will be a way maker, and that's a fulfillment of Malachi 4 uh, of the scriptures as well. So Zechariah, at the end of this chapter, he's singing praise to God. And um, in that uh, song, he says this. He says, and you, child, he's talking about his son. He's talking about his son, John the Baptist, who's, who's been born, okay? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and at the end of his song, he says, and you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Whose ways is John the Baptist preparing? Jesus's. And Jesus is called the Lord and linked in a parallel couplet to the Most High. So there's this conflation of this, this, this Jesus, this son of the Most High, somehow. It's not clear until we are on the other side of Jesus, where we are now, and we see this son of the Most High is the Most High and is the Lord himself. It's the miracle of Advent. It's why we can be saved. So he's God's son, um, and that really is a fulfillment of, of a text in Isaiah and elsewhere, texts that really are very mysterious and, and until we see this come to pass, Jesus, uh, Emmanuel. But Isaiah 9, 6 says, it's a prophecy 700 years before Jesus, and it says, it's, it's, a, given, it's a prophecy and a promise given to Israel, and it says, unto you um, a child will be born, and unto you a son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. So the government will be, in a sense, opposed to him. He'll carry a burden um, for all of us. And the government will be on his shoulders. So he's not going to take sweep the government with him and be the king, the political king. He's going to be some other kind of king. But what will his name be? What will his character be? What will he be like? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. So we are seeing Gabriel come to Mary and give this amazing word that fulfills all sorts of scriptures, which we'll dip into in just a second more. Um, so he'll be God's son, but he'll also, as I, as I just, just said, and as Gabriel says, he'll also be David's son. He'll also be David's son. So he'll be the son of God, divine, but he'll also be the son of, of David and, and through a woman at that. So he'll be fully God and fully man, which we'll get to in the next, in the next point. Um, so he will fulfill the scripture in that way and he will very much be Israel's king because that fulfills the promise to Abraham that Abraham was told by God, through you, what? Will all the families of the earth be blessed? Through you. And this is a fulfillment of that. But he'll be more than a Jewish king. So 2 Samuel 7, again, David's given the promise that through, you will have a son, your son, 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 that his reign will never end. And David just says, I believe it, and I'm on my face worshiping you for that promise. Um, the Old Testament is scattered broadcast with other prophecies like this. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, again, the problem, it's, it's this king given to Israel who will be more than a king to Israel. He will, he will 
solve the problem of war between a holy God and sinful mankind. And in Psalm 2, we see something of that. Psalm 2 is one of the portals to the entryway to the songbook of God's people. And, and it basically says, look, the, the nations and the rulers and the powers that be on this earth are opposed to God. How is God gonna solve that problem? One answer. He's gonna put a son on the throne. It's gonna be a son of David. And that son of David is gonna crush all opposition. And the only safe place, the only way to be at peace with God is basically gonna be to hide in this son, to take refuge in him lest you be broken to pieces. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, Psalm two. So he's the son of David, but he's this king that all other earthly kings are eventually gonna bow down to. And we see that consummately in Daniel seven. Jesus' favorite name for himself was the son of man. He was constantly referring to himself in the third person. Who does that? Jesus did. In part because he was, he was, he was taking to himself these titles that we're forecasting hundreds of years previously in the Old Testament, Messiah, Messiah's coming, and he was saying, that's me. Daniel 7 gives us the most vivid picture of the Son of Man. And what's he gonna be like? He's going to approach the Most High. The name in Daniel 7 is the Ancient of Days. It's the one God. It's the unapproachable God. Angels bow down, they cover their, they have six wings, they cover their eyes, they cover their feet, and they fly with the other two. They have eyes all around and they say, holy, holy, holy. We can't even, we angels, sinless, unfallen, can't even look at you. Even though we were created to be your messengers and to be in your presence, you're so holy and high and powerful and good. We can't, it's like getting too close to the sun. We can't even look at you. And one called the son of man, so he's a man, is able to approach this ancient of days, this uncreated one. He's able to walk right up to his throne and to sit on the throne with him. To him, the Ancient of Days gives all, he gives global dominion. And all of the earth becomes his kingdom over time. So this is, this, he's, a, he's, a, he's God's son, but he's also David's son, and he's a Jewish king, but he's, he's more than a Jewish king. This is the picture, this mega king that we're getting of Jesus. But also, point two, we're getting into a great mystery that we really, we can, dip into, but we can't comprehend. We can only apprehend it. But we're given here more by Luke than any other, any other gospel writer. And it's the miracle and the mystery of the virgin birth. How did God come to us as a baby, grow up to be a man and save us? We, we get as close here as we ever get to the mechanics of that, to the mystery of that. Um, and right at the, at the front of this second point, the mystery, I just wanna say, let's just hit the elephant in the room. If you remember anything from last sermon, and David Baker came up, I think, and asked me this last week, but he said, and maybe it was somebody else, but it was probably David, because he always asked me the tough questions, and I'm always like, later, David, we'll talk about it later, but here it is. You know, Zachariah asked a question of Gabriel, and he got, he got a sign that it was gonna come to pass. What was his sign? His sign was, yeah, he just went mute. He couldn't talk until John was born, until he said his name will be John. He wrote it on a tablet and then his mouth was open. And then that just, that made all the more uh, impact on, on the people around Jerusalem that knew of this event. The word of God has come to pass and we have all these signs for how it has, how it has happened. Um, so he asked a question and got turned mute for nine months. Mary asked a question and this was David's question, but she doesn't, she doesn't get 
punished. She doesn't get chastised. She doesn't get turned mute at all. Um, Gabriel gives her an amazing answer. So what's, what's the deal here? Is this favoritism? Um, well, I think it's, there's, a, there's a slight difference. And again, what is Luke doing? He's constantly comparing John the Baptist and Jesus. And he's doing that in this too. They both ask questions. There's a whole litany of things that are similar but very different, okay, about John the Baptist and Jesus and about the announcements of their birth. Um, but this is one. I think in short, the difference is that Zachariah says, hey, how do I know this is gonna happen? How do I know that God's telling the truth here? How do I know that you're even from God? And that's, as much as, hey, I sympathize. I would have been right there with Zachariah, man. I mean, far worse, I'm sure. But he's doubting God's capacity. He's doubting God's power. Mary doesn't do that. She isn't saying, is this really gonna happen? She just says, hey, hang on. Amazing, but pretty sure I know how babies are made. And I'm not married yet. I'm betrothed, but I'm a virgin she says, you know, how is this gonna happen being that I'm a virgin? So not, not is it gonna happen. She trusts him. She believes the word of the Lord through Gabriel, but she says, how's it gonna happen? And he, he is glad to answer her question. So I think one just sort of small takeaway is that she wasn't a credulous bumpkin. She was an ancient. She was a, a, a girl from a small village, poor. She was full of the scripture. She knew the, the word of the Lord, which Paul's gonna preach the Magnificat, Mary's Mary's song of praise, extemporaneous praise after Gabriel comes to her, uh, which shows that it's almost all scripture from the Old Testament. She just bursts into song, and what, what is it? It's, it's, it's what she's been imbibing her whole, her whole life up till the age of 14 or 15 or however old she is. She's a teenager, almost assuredly, uh, when Gabriel comes to her. But she's no bumpkin. She's no fool. She knows how babies are born, and this, this isn't the way it's gonna happen. I also think it's a bit curious um, so all, all that to say, we need to, give the, we need to give the ancients the credit the text gives them. And she, 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 she's trying to figure out how's this gonna happen. We would ask the same question if we had faith. But it's also a bit curious because, and this didn't occur to me until I was studying this text, but commentators tend to agree. Um, I'm just, and this doesn't really help at all what we're, what we're doing here, but I'm, it's a curious question. How will this be? Because She's engaged, more than engaged. She's betrothed in that culture. It's like you really didn't break off a betrothal. You were as good as married, but you weren't married yet. So you had to wait to consummate. But um, it was very serious. Uh, and she knows she's about to be in a position to have a child. So I would have naturally taken that as, okay, you're going to have this son. He's gonna be son of Most High. He's gonna be son of David. Uh, and I would have just extrapolated from that and thought, okay, well, then when we get married... That's the amazing promise that will happen between me and Joseph. But she somehow knows, and I don't know how, but there is something that maybe between the lines here, she knew, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, that he was talking about her conceiving before she married Joseph and before she had relations with him. And that's indeed what happens. Um, the word for, vir just again, under the, exploring the mystery here, the word for virgin it, to be fair, it can, it can also be a young woman of marriageable age. It can really mean just explicitly a virgin. It can also be a young woman of marriageable age in the Greek. Um, but a young woman of marriageable age in this culture was synonymous with virgin. So there's no doubt about the fact that this is, this is the miracle um, of the incarnation that Gabriel is, is prophesying. Um, and just to sort of, before we move into the last point in some application, just to kind of descend a little bit more into the language that Gabriel uses of God impregnating Mary. It's, it's delicate, 
It's layered. It's full of mystery. Um, I had a Muslim friend in Edinburgh. We were at the Central Mosque, and he was talking about this. And he, he, he brought this verse up and used it as a sort of stick to try to beat me with as to how vulgar that the Most High would come upon Mary. And, and, I, and I just I disagree. I think that it's, it's language that is, it gives us enough, but it, we, it we doesn't go all the way. We don't quite understand. And it's not sexual relations. Some, some cults and sects believe that it, it is, but that's, the pic, that's not the picture at all that we get here. But rather, it's a parallelism that says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then the Most High will overshadow you, will overshadow you. Um, and this language, so it's delicate, it's layered, it's full of mystery. It gets us to the brink, but doesn't tell us exactly how this is going to happen, but it's not going to involve a man. Um, it's, um, it's reminiscent of, it, within, within an Old Testament background, of uh, its language, this Holy Spirit will come upon you. The presence of God will come upon this person and will be over you and in you. It's reminiscent of the Shekinah glory, the presence of the living God coming upon the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Um, so in that sense, it's a full, and what is the temple and the tabernacle? It's the place where God and man meet in peace through sacrifice. It's how God's people, through their sin break, through their sin and law breaking, are able to still be his people, is the temple where God and man meet because of blood sacrifice, because of atonement. And um, this is a foretaste, I think, God's presence in Mary and over Mary um, and with Mary uh, is, a, is a foretaste of what Christ will bring through his life and his death and his resurrection, every believer. God in us, God with us. It's a foretaste of Pentecost. Um, but it is just crucial. What we get through this virgin birth is that, um, that this promised son is going to be God's son. It's going to be divine. And he's going to be Mary's son. He's going to inhabit her womb and grow like any other child would in her womb and then be born. Um, we, we often refer to the, this as the virgin birth, but a comment, an astute commentator that I was reading said, it's actually not a virgin, it is a virgin birth, but it's not, it's not the birth that's any different. The birth looked just the same as any other birth, but it was the conception that was the miracle, that God overshadowed her in his Holy Spirit, and without Joseph's help, um, Jesus came, came forth. And so he who... It's not that Jesus had not existed before. It's not that the son of the second person of the Trinity had not existed. He, had, he is eternal. He is God. He had always existed. It's that he had never taken human for, form. So he began to know something that he had never known before in the incarnation. And that is, that is amazing. But this, this child would be fully God and fully man. And the thing about that is that's so important, and we could, we could preach a whole series just on this point. Um, but it, it was crucial, crucial, crucial for our salvation, that our Savior, that the Messiah be God, 100%, fully God, and also fully man, because only God has the power to save us from what we need saving from, our condition. Our only God can take upon himself the, the wrath of God and endure it and survive, and indeed Jesus, Jesus did that, but only man needs to. Because it was man who was given, he was made in God's image and he was given charge over God's creation. And through his sin and rebellion, he was broken and all that he was given charge over 
was broken. And this Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna restore that. And so only man can represent men rightly. So this, but only man doesn't have the power and has the problem. Man is broken. Man, man is part of the sin curse that we're born into. And so how is this going to be surmounted? This is God's plan. It was hidden from ages and foretold through the prophets, but is now being made manifest, this miracle um, of the incarnation, this mystery. So he will be not only Adam's son, he will be not only David's son, but he will be, he will be God's son. Um, and in verse 35, there's this, again, I, it's maybe my favorite verse in this text. It says, Gabriel says, in answer to Mary's question, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and here's that parallelism, said a different way, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called, will be called holy. Um, that word overshadow, there's, it's pregnant with meaning, and I use that word intentionally. Um, it, is, it is absolutely pregnant with meaning. It's a tender word. It's, 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 the, it's like the shadow of God. He's close enough. The shadow of his presence, the nearness of his presence comes over her, and it's powerful enough for her to conceive, um, for her egg to be fertilized, and for God to be um, this thing, uncreated but taking on a human nature for the first time in eternity. Amazing. Um, again, we get right to the edge, but we can't quite comprehend. But this overshadowed thing, I think there are, and this is from another commentator, but there are, there are tones of a mystery here because a shadow is many things. It's often God in the Old Testament when God, God is, we hide in the shadow of his wings. His nearness is our good as he covers us and as we hide in him and, our, and he is our refuge. His shadow is protection and, and it's protection here for Mary. Um, but it's also protection through, what else do shadows do? Pro- protection through concealment. The shadow of a tree in the Serengeti in the middle of the summertime is your life. You will live if you find that tree and get underneath it and close enough to it that you will not bake in the 130 degree sun. It's, it's life. Um, and there's a sense in which the nearness of God will be her good and will, and will produce this thing that will save all of creation. But it's also a sense of concealment. There's a sense, and that's part of the mystery, that he will be a mega king, he will rule over the nations, but not like we think, because guess what? The government is going to be on his shoulders, and he's going to be concealed. And I think, is it Isaiah, one of the four servant songs in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 49, he will be like a weapon in God's hand, but like concealed until the last moment, sort of like Ehud, one of the judges, I believe it's Ehud, one of the judges um, in um, in in the book of Judges, in, in Judges 3, he has this dagger, and he doesn't pull it out, he's like, it's like um, strapped to one of his thighs and he has a skirt on and he pulls it out at the last minute. I have a present for you, O king. And the king's waiting for a present and he just pulls out pyop, this dagger. And that, there's a sense in which that is, that is what this Messiah is going to be. He's concealed by the shadow of the living God. He's not the kind of king we expect. And I, um, how, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Messiah is going to be concealed, that, that um, nobody knows about this. Even though this, there's this, he's, this greater, he's this greater prophet, and yes, greater than a prophet than John the Baptist. He is the savior of the world. He'd, all the countryside is in a hubbub and an uproar about John the Baptist 
anticipating his birth and then when he's born and then for 30 years. But Mary and a few shepherds, all heaven rejoices, but they basically tell shepherds and some wise men that are in the east who come maybe years later to find Jesus. But the only one who really knows and to whom this is announced is a poor peasant girl in the hills of Nazareth. Jesus is concealed. He's hidden. He's born poor. He chose to be born to Mary and Joseph. He chose to be born, as we sang earlier, in a feed trough. It's part of God's plan for saving us, for being the kind of king who doesn't crush us, but is actually crushed in our place. I have some Jewish friends I was speaking with last week, and they, one of their adept, insightful questions was, if Messiah, if Jesus is the Messiah that our scriptures, the Old Testament, they call it the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh, prophesy and foretell, why wasn't it more obvious? It's a great question. And I think we have beginnings of an answer here, is that if he had come in uh, fanfare with hoopla, with trumpets blaring, as we might expect a mega king, the son of the living God, the creator of all things, the speaker of the stars. If he had come like we might have expected, nobody would have not bowed down to him. Everybody would have worshiped him, and guess what? He never would have been crucified. But what is his name to be? His name is to be Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Yeshua. It means God saves Notice how much Mary even had to do with this. No, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the Most High, will come upon you. And she simply receives the salvation of the living God. Jesus means God saves. He doesn't need help. He's not taking any help. He is going to do it alone. And how is he going to do it? By being misunderstood, by being a man of sorrows, by identifying with the poor and the lowly and going to the lowest place with us and then by hanging on a cross for us, by being basically shunned and turned aside. This cannot be Messiah, let's crucify him. And all along, this is why he came. He came to die. He came in a shadow, as it were. So we're led by Gabriel's words, ostensibly about Christ to expect a great king, and he indeed will be great, and he will rule over the nations, and he will, he will dash all opposition in the end like, uh, like a, a rod of iron dashes a clay pot. But first and foremost, um, he will be dashed himself. That's the kind of king that he will be. He will take upon himself the wrath, the just wrath of a holy God against our sin. And as such, as the God-man, he will bring us back to God. He will be that way um, between, between God and man. He will do that on a cross. Um, and that will be his power manifest. That will be his meganess, his greatness most manifest in a way that fooled us all, even though it was foretold. Even though it was foretold. Um, so, lastly, Jesus, he's, he's the mega king. There's this mystery of the virgin birth. How is he going to come? How is he going to save us, his birth foretells some of what the, the kind of king and savior that he'll be. But he's also, he's the Messiah. He is, again, the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures and he will be the king of the Jews and more. Um, but this mystery, this great one, but that's born poor, 
by his own choice, a, a poor child to poor parents that grows up into a poor man of sorrows and is rejected, he helps us understand this dual nature that Messiah is going to have. Of Even the Jews today, in ancient, ancient days certainly, but even, even still, they, they have sort of two schools of thought, and, and certainly this is the case thousand years ago and, and just after Jesus's, uh, Jesus's arrival and even before his arrival. But what kind of Messiah do the old, does the Old Testament proclaim? He's gonna be this mega king full of power and might, but there, it, there, are, there are other scriptures that seem to say that he's going to carry our sorrows and by his stripes we're gonna be healed. He's gonna be rejected. Like how can he be both? Jesus helps us see that and as such he he shows that he is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Um, John Calvin has some really helpful words in his opening section on this, in his opening comment on this section in verse 26. He says, so, so verse 26 opens up as, as Austin read, now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? Mary has, has the same visitor and he says, John the Baptist is coming, but someone's coming who's gonna be even greater, your son. It's gonna be the son of the most high. And this is what Calvin says. He says, it was a wonderful dispensation of the divine purpose and far removed from the ordinary judgment of men, that God determined to make the beginning of the generation of the herald more illustrious than that of his own son. In other words, Calvin's saying, it's amazing that God determined, as I've been saying, that the, that the coming of John the Baptist would, be, would have a lot more fanfare and a, lot, a much bigger deal among his countrymen would be made of John's coming than of Jesus's, okay? Because Mary is the only one receiving this. All right, um, the prophecy respecting John was published in the temple and universally known. Christ is promised to a virgin in an obscure town of Judea. And this prophecy remains buried in the breast of a young woman. Calvin goes on to comment, he says, but it was proper that even from the birth of Christ, that saying should be fulfilled. Listen to this. It pleased God by foolishness to save them that believe, 1 Corinthians 1.21. He was going, he's not the kind of king we were expecting. He's still not. He's still offensive to all the ways in which we think a king ought to be and the sort of people that he comes after um, and calls to himself, wait, what? I've got to, I've got to let go of my pride let go of any idea that I can contribute at all to my salvation. You're telling me that Jesus means God saves and God alone, and that I simply need to receive that and believe on him? That's really how God chose to do this? That's offensive. It's offensive to our pride. Um, a few observations, and then, and then we're done, and we'll take communion together. A few observations on this that sort of, if I've kind of had an M theme, which I try to steer clear of alliteration, because I think it can be really cheesy, um, but in this case, we've had, we've had three M's, so I just might as well keep going with just a few, a few observations. The first on just the meekness of Mary, just her, her meekness. Um, it's a big part of this text. I focused on Jesus, but she's a big, a big player here as well. Um, and I think that um, I said that, I basically started by saying, let's look at this mega king that Gabriel has us to expect. This king that's gonna rule. He's gonna be the son of the most high. But actually we see even before that, even before Gabriel announces that, we see Mary's response to his coming and to his words. And what does it say in verse 29? It says that she was greatly troubled at the saying. And commentators 
really have trouble with this, and I do too. I'm not sure what it means because it doesn't say like Zachariah and like almost everyone else that has an angelic encounter that she was fearful and troubled and shaking because of the presence of the angel. That could have been part of this. So it explicitly says that she was greatly troubled at the saying. What was the saying? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. It's not like your face is gonna melt off or... It's not bad news, it's good news. God is with you, greetings, you are highly favored. Commentators really are nonplussed, as am I. Why was she troubled? And that, that Greek word is only used here. It means deeply disturbed, greatly troubled at that saying in particular. I don't know, but my best guess is that it had something to do with her meekness and her humility, that she was truly Troubled, disturbed, agitated by not pushing against his word. We see at the very end of the text that Austin read, the last verse says that, that she says, be it done to me according to your word. But it was sort of, as far as I can tell, a, a complete surprise that God would come to her, that God would give her, that he would choose her out of all the people, not just of the day, but of, of world history, that he would come to her for this fulfillment of the plan to save all creation. And in her humility, she can't even take that in. And I love that about her. And I think that it gives us a glimpse into what God loves. He loves the humble. He loves the contrite in heart. He loves to work in those, to lift up those who are downtrodden and oppressed and low in circumstance, in heart, and often the two go together. Um, she says, again, at the, end of the, at the end of the text, she says, let it be done to me. Um, let me actually just turn there. She says, let it, let it be to me according to your word, in verse 38. Let it be to me according to your word. And I think that we, again, see something else here of why God chose Mary to be his mother. Just the, the reception of whatever it is, I'm overwhelmed with this word. I can't even begin to process. You've now told me how it's going to happen, but she doesn't say, give me some time to think it over. We have no possible way of being in her shoes enough to know in this culture, now knowing that she as a virgin would be pregnant with child, not yet hasn't yet sealed the deal with her husband and she's going to start showing. She doesn't bring any of that stuff up. She knows even now she's got to begin to feel the weight of what this word, this blessed word from God, this highest honor is going to cost her. And yet she says, let it be done to me according to God's word. She receives his word, she humbles herself, she submits and she trusts God. And I think that in this, and this occurred to me, I think this morning, just as I, sort of the tail end of my meditation on this, I've never thought it before, but I became very aware of the fact that Mary in saying this and in receiving the word of God that doesn't seem to make any sense and that seems even to perhaps be um, to confront her with some real hardship and her life will play out in such a way that she, she wouldn't even have been able to imagine how much hardship, Okay. She is the opposite of Eve in this. Eve 
knows God's word and says, you know what, I'm not going to trust that, gonna go my own way. And that's all of our story. We've inherited that. But what does Mary do? She reverses that. She's the opposite. She's the anti-Eve. I'm not saying she's sinless. She wasn't. What does it say twice of her in this text? It says she's the favored one and has God's favor, twice. That word is grace. It's the, it's the root word for grace. Even Mary needs, he's not coming to her because she deserves it. He's coming to her out of his merit and his goodness. And, but she, in receiving God's word and saying, I don't understand it, it's a threat to me in a sense, but I trust you. And do what you have said you're going to do and let it be to me according to your word. Um, God uses that and, and becomes the second Adam through the vehicle of her reception of this. Um, to undo all that Adam had done or to redo all that Adam had undone. I think that's beautiful. Um, Sort of as I close up, just a couple more observations. This posture, friends, this blessing from the Lord, can you think of a higher blessing than to be the bearer of God himself who will go on to save humankind and to remake all creation? It brings incredible pain. This word from God that is a blessing brings incredible pain to Mary. And I just wanna say God's blessings are often like that. See, see the person of Job, see Jesus himself, the very word of God, the beloved of the Lord on a cross, enduring God's wrath for us. Um, Mary, again, shows us this too in a, in a more vivid way when a few, a few uh, bits on in this text, it's prophesied about her that a sword will pierce her own heart because of Jesus, this savior who, who she will bear and who will be the savior of the world, she's gonna be so heartbroken because he will grow up to be a man of sorrows. Only really she knows who he is. And she's the one at the first miracle in Cana in John 2 where she's, he's like, it's not my time yet, mom. She's like, do what they tell. She says to the servants, do, what, do whatever he tells you. You know, she knows who this guy is. Nobody else does, but he's rejected. He's a man of sorrows to the point that he is put on a Roman cross, all part of God's plan to save us. But she is sitting there at the cross watching her son and whom she knows to be the son of the living God being crucified. And everything she thought she knew is just being dashed. She had, she, can you imagine the pain? Yet can you imagine on the flip side, the joy, Mary's joy, resurrection morning, seeing her resurrected son again, knowing for sure, this is God. I bore him, I raised him. This is God, he is the second Adam in the upper room, part of the 120 before Pentecost when the spirit came down, there is Mary. Can you imagine the reception, the meeting between her and her son when she got to heaven, when she died? Wow, the grief, but the joy on the flip side. And lastly, just that God loves the poor. He, I've laced this throughout the sermon, but just to finish on this, he loves the overlooked. He loves women um, he gave to Eve the charge. He gave Adam and Eve the charge in Genesis 1. He gave him one commission. It was to fill the earth with his, with his image and to subdue it and to cultivate it for his glory. How is that gonna happen? Be fruitful and multiply. How? Through the woman. Without woman, we, can't, we cannot fulfill the commission of the living God. And Mary gets to be the bearer of the one who will, who will save us. Um, God chose to begin the remaking of this broken cosmos and us, broken as we are, inside a poor teenage Jewish girl's womb. He counted that a place fit for a king. How important are women to him? How important are the poor, are the lowly? How important 
is how consecrated and special is childbearing in a woman's womb. Um, I, can't th- I can't think of anything more important now that, I, now that I look at it in this way. And our Lord has so dignified it by choosing it to be his palace for nine months. Um, we have a quote on our website from Robert Dabney, 19th century Presbyterian minister. He said this. He said, the education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It's the one business for which the earth exists to it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent especially ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the task for which he is kept alive by God. This is his task on earth. I just want to encourage you sort of on that note and as I close, if you're, there is no higher charge. Mary didn't just have bear Christ, carry him, and then bear him in childbirth, she raised him. Her love of scripture transferred to him. She taught him, along with Joseph, how to love God's word. And if she had been a hypocrite, who knows what would have come of him, but she truly loved God and trusted him according to his word, and that was passed on to her son. And she changed the world through her meek service, overlooked by the rest of the world, but not by God. God works, I just wanna say through that in closing, God works through small places. He loves the lowly, he loves the despised. He loves the immigrant, he loves the refugee. Um, He loves the poor, he loves the poor in spirit. I think it's just a huge hazard that we have in um, in this church, in this community that it's a gift of God that we are by and large so wealthy in so many ways. That's a gift, that's a resource. But what it can do, it's not evil in and of itself, but what it can do is it can produce because of our brokenness, a pride that God hates and we can look right over and past what he's doing. And it's not, just, it's not about money at all really. It's about a meekness of disposition. He loves the poor, but he also loves, um, he loves going to the deep, dark places in our lives and, let, and, and having us just open up those places to him. So if, if, if whether you're materially poor or whether to encourage you in something like the PLI thing that we're doing next Sunday, where we're going to be with immigrants and refugees, largely Muslim, um, to encourage you like, this is, this is what God loves, like get in there, sign up, let's, let's go and meet with him. Let's let them be our teachers. This is where God is. Let's not look past that. They can instruct us. They have so much to give and we have so much to give them in giving them Christ. Um, but also, even on a deeper level, and, I, and, I, and I'm done, um, wherever, wherever you are financially, whatever part of town you live in, whatever car you drive, what God loves is the, the deep, dark places. He loves to go there with you, not to pass over them. I was with someone this week who thought his whole life, he, the right thing to do is just to be strong, air quotes, and pass over the brokenness and all the stuff that, um, that really, if he opened up about it, would cause him to be humbled and to say, I don't deserve you, Lord. But that's where God loves to go, to go down deep into those places, to minister to us in that darkness, and then to bring us out of that darkness. He, so I just wanna encourage you, go there with people. Let us go there with you. Go there with me. That's life. And that's where God is. And that's the kind of community we wanna be um, as a people who are Christ's body and who have the Lord inside of us. So he is the God who comes to those places and who comes to that people. So um, let, me, let me close 
Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the, the miracle and the wonder of Advent that you condescended, not just to become, as the maker of the stars and of all things, the, the condescension involved in simply becoming one of us, a human, would have been incomprehensible but the, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a paradise, but on earth. But the fact that you came into our brokenness, into our darkness, into the lowest place, that you chose to be born poor and to bear our sin and to die an ignominious death on a cross and to endure hell and the wrath of God for us. It's, it's not beyond belief. Help us to believe, but blow our minds and hearts with it and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.